The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever, that we may do all the words of His law. In other words, to be faithful to Him. That's from Deuteronomy 29, 29. I would encourage you to memorize that and go back to that and remember. Some things are revealed, some things are not. We can trust Him with it all. But we are given enough information to be faithful to our God and to walk with Him and to grow in grace. See, God has, he has revealed everything that we need to know to have joy in Him, to have salvation in Him, to have rest in Him, to grow in grace, to be on mission for Him. We have everything we need to know to trust Him and to live for Him, and to know Him in His grace. But He has not revealed everything Especially answers to our why questions, right? Agabus has foretold and told what will happen when Paul goes to Jerusalem. and that There will be persecutions, Paul said, and, and, and arrests, and there's going to be trouble. He's, had, he's been reminded of that in every city he went to, but especially then Agabus comes along and tells him what is going to happen in Jerusalem, but he says nothing about the why. Think about all of the suffering that Job went through. And he did have some questions, but the only question that was answered for Job was who his God was. He didn't get answers to the why questions. A lot of our why questions go unanswered until we pass from this life, and probably at that point most of them won't matter anymore. See, much of life or the stuff that happens to us on a daily basis lie within the realm of what Deuteronomy 29, 29 calls the secret things. Things that God has decreed but not revealed in detail. Things that we must trust Him with and grow in grace through. Oftentimes we know nothing about them until they happen. See, you know, Many of the things that happen in our lives, we don't have the warning, the detailed warning ahead of time like Paul had from Agabus. We're just going along. Uh, sometimes things are going pretty good. We're seeking to follow Christ, and then all of a sudden it seems like the wheels fall off. Often what lies within the realm of the secret things that belong to the Lord our God are painful things. How do we trust God when life is hard? When His Word hasn't directly spoken to our situation? Well, today we're going to look at Paul. And Paul, has his arrest has been foretold, and we've seen it perfectly revealed, and we'll see it accomplished according to that prediction today. So we'll talk about that and the things that God has revealed and how, how that matters, and then we'll talk a little bit about the things He hasn't revealed and a little bit about the why question. But what I want us to take away, and many times it's a challenge in historical narrative to see and have things come from the text that are applicable but I hope you see that this will come from the text and when we keep it in its context. But the main point today is God has revealed everything we need to know to trust Him with the secret things. Therefore, know His Word, trust Him, and live for His glory. He's revealed everything we need to know to trust Him with the things He hasn't revealed. We have enough, therefore, to know Him, to know His Word, to trust Him, and to live for His glory. But look first at Paul's arrest. His arrest by the Jews. 
before his arrest by the Romans. Verses 27 to 30, but first I want to give you a reminder. I've, I've mentioned Agabus's prediction, but I want to read it because it unfolds as we see what happens to Paul here in chapter 21. Agabus had said this, and, and it's recorded in Acts 21, 11. It says, And coming to us, he, Agabus, took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him over into the hands of the Gentiles. So Paul basically, what, he, what Agabus is saying is Paul in Jerusalem will be arrested by the Jews and handed over to the Romans or the Gentiles. So we're going to see that, that two steps play out as we see here what happened to Paul. So look back in the text, if you would, in verses 27 to 30. And I, I mentioned this already when it says in 27, when the seven days were almost completed. That refers to the vow that Paul had agreed to take, maybe a Nazarite vow. Not 100% sure. We talked about that last week. I'll let you go back and listen to that sermon. But he's, he's doing what is required by the vow. He's there and he's in the temple. And it says his seven days of purification are almost completed. And when that, when that moment came, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, now watch, they, they know who he is, and they've seen him in the city, and they see him now in the temple, and they make an assumption based on the false report that somebody's spreading, maybe them, they're at least part of that, it says they saw him in the temple and now they stir up the whole crowd and laid hands on him. That doesn't mean they prayed for him. They stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him crying out. Now watch this. Men of Israel, help. <clears throat> this is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people. Israel. And against the law and against this place. This is very similar to the accusations that were made against Stephen. We saw in Acts chapter 7. Accusations that are made against Jesus. If you remember the trials of Christ. This guy is the troublemaker. The, he is he's going everywhere to everyone. And speaking against all of these things that we hold dear. And we know we saw this when we talked about what him talking to James last week. That that's not true. Right? He is preaching the gospel and he is showing how things are fulfilled in Christ and he has had dispute over whether or not the Gentiles need to become Jews in order to be saved. There was a whole council about that in Acts 15. I'll point you back to that. But this is a false report and an accusation that he is, he is seeking to destroy everything precious to the Jews. It says, and now watch this. Moreover, he brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. That is an outright lie based on an assumption, maybe. It's either just a malicious lie or it's a false conclusion based on an assumption. Gentiles were not allowed into the temple. The, the Gentile, there was a court of the Gentiles, but that was even outside the court of the women it was on the outer realms. It was lower than the other courts. And Gentiles could go no further into the temple than that. They're saying that Paul has brought a Gentile all the way into the temple. Now watch this. It says in verse 29, For they had previously seen Trophimus, 
the Ephesian with him in the city. And they supposed that he had brought him into the temple. They didn't actually see Trophimus in the temple. They saw Paul with him in the city. And so they just assumed or even just accused that, you know, wherever Paul is, Trophimus is, so he's in the temple, so that Gentile's in here somewhere. Nobody caught him in there. He wasn't in there. Nobody saw him in there. But these guys are just like, like we've seen over and over and over in Paul's missionary journeys. We've seen it in the life of Christ and the Jewish leadership and how they will lie and manipulate to try to kill him because he's pointing out their sin and calling them to repentance. We saw it in the life of Stephen when he finally had had enough and called out the Jewish leadership and they stoned him. We see it here. The same sort of thing is taking place. Jerusalem is a dangerous place at this time for a faithful man of the gospel to be. And so they are crying out and calling the people together. They're making false accusations. They're stirring up the city. They're saying they knew. I mean, this is one thing that will stir up the Jews in the temple. This man has defiled the temple. He has brought a Gentile into the temple. Now watch what the response is to the accusation. Verse 30. Then all the city was stirred up and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple and at once the gates were shut. So they're shutting the gates of the temple. No more defilement to protect it. Probably thinking now they have to cleanse it. All of this kind of thing. But they have taken hold of Paul. It says here that they seized Paul. They seized him, and it probably means they arrested him. You know that there's, there's temple authorities and temple guards. There's, there are people there that are in charge for protecting and, and keeping law and order in the temple. And this probably means that they arrested Paul, and I'll tell you why I say that. Um, for one, the tribune, who in the text, who is the one who who arrests Paul for the Roman side of the issue, he said this in 23-27. He said, When this man was arrested by the Jews and was about to be slain by them. So the tribune's testimony is that Paul had been arrested. They were seeking to carry out you know, Jewish justice on him for what they're at least accusing him of doing. But the tribune himself said that he'd been arrested. And this, this word for seized here is the same word translated arrested earlier in Acts. And in Acts 1.16 it says that it speaks of those who arrested Jesus. And that's the same word that we have here as seized. And why the ESV chose to translate it seized in one place and arrested in another doesn't seem to make much sense. Maybe it was a... I don't know. But anyway... It seems that this word means that he was arrested. That's the tribune's testimony in 23:27 from the New American Standard is that when this man was arrested by the Jews and was about to be slain by them. So he had been arrested. What about this binding? Agabus said something about a binding. The Jews would bind him and hand him over. Well, we don't, we're not told anything about that. I think we probably should translate that word, they arrested him. But, you know, just like in our culture, whenever someone's arrested, they're restrained. Because you don't want them causing any more havoc. Even if they just suspect somebody of something, they'll restrain them until they figure out 
whether or not something is going on. But Jewish practice was to restrain those that were arrested. And we see this in the life of Jesus. But I didn't say it about Paul, but it's, it's common practice and it was practiced by the Jews. Even the night Jesus was arrested, he was seized in the garden. It says this in John 18, 12 to 13. So the, this is talking about Christ. So the band of soldiers and their captain with the officers of the Jews, notice who's doing it, arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. So when they would arrest somebody, they would bind them. And there's no reason to assume that they didn't bind him here. Agabus, a true prophet of the Lord, said they would. It's common practice that they did. They did it to Jesus. It seems that they would have done it to Paul because the testimony of the text here is that he was arrested in the temple. So Paul was probably bound by the Jews, maybe even with his own belt. I don't know. Agabus didn't necessarily say it would be his own belt, right? But the Jews have taken custody of Paul. They have wretched him out of the temple and they're seeking to execute speedy, at least in their minds, justice upon him. The biblical evidence seems to indicate he was both arrested and bound before being dragged out of the temple. And this is, first part is in perfect accord with the first part of Agabus' prophecy. Secondly, Paul's arrest by the Romans. Paul's revealed arrest by the Romans, verses 31 to 36. It says, as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune. A tribune is, is the leader of, of a cohort, and a cohort is a thousand men. Probably in the fortress Antonia, which was adjacent to the temple and you know, they would have come from there. They were close by. And so word comes to the cohort and comes to the tribune that there's trouble. And this is not a new thing. That's why they're so close. There's often trouble in, in Jerusalem and, and, and around there. So they want to be able to quickly quell it. But it says here that as they were seeking to kill him, the word came to the tribune of the cohort and all Jerusalem was in confusion. So there's a lot of confusion going on it says he at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them and when he saw when they saw this is the Jews the tribune and the soldiers they stopped beating Paul which makes sense because these are a bunch of bad dudes coming down to stop this riot they don't want to be arrested for rioting they don't want to be you know taken care of by these Roman soldiers, so they stop beating Paul. Stepping back, I'm sure, as the Romans come closer. And then it says this, then the, in verse 33, then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Maybe, maybe that means bound to two soldiers. N not 100% sure about that. But this is the second part of the prophecy. That the Jews bound, arrested him and bound him and then they handed him over to the Gentiles, to the Romans. Did they deliver him over to the Romans though? Well, they maybe didn't band, package him up and take him over and say, here, this dude's being a bad dude. But when they were executing their, their justice upon him and the Romans come, they back away and allow the Romans to take him. So there is a delivering over going in. They didn't fight the Romans to try to keep him. They didn't keep beating him. 
they opened the hand, as it were, and let him be taken by the Romans. So this is the second part of the prophecy. First, the Jews bind him and arrest him. Second, they deliver him to the Gentiles. And Paul's testimony. I make a big deal out of this, not a huge deal, but there are some people that say Agabus got it wrong. And every bit of light we have in the New Testament, where we have light, seems to say he got it right. And nowhere does the Bible say he got it wrong. But Paul's own testimony in Acts 28.17 says this, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet, now watch the language, I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. Paul says he was delivered into the hands of the Romans. So I, I, think, I think that pretty much shows at least what he thought about it. So part two of the prophecy comes true. Paul is arrested, bound, and delivered over to the Romans. The point I'm making here is Agabus, Agabus was a faithful prophet and he faithfully delivered the message the Holy Spirit gave him to deliver. He was a true prophet with a true prophecy God had revealed ahead of time through Agabus and many others as Paul was traveling. He said in every city he was getting warning. He wasn't being told not to go, but he was getting a, a pre-warning of what was going to happen. And it has happened. And it has come true. He's been arrested. He's been beaten. He's been bound. He's been turned over to the Romans. Now they bind him with their instruments and are going to carry him out because they really just can't. There's no cohesiveness to the crowd where they can figure out what's going on. It even says in verse 35, when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob, they following along and crying out, away with him. Does that sound familiar? Away with him? It's the same thing the mob in Jerusalem said about Jesus. Away with him. John 19, 14 to 15. Now it was the day of the preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour and he said to the Jews, Behold your king. Who said that? Pilate. Behold your king. And they cried out, Yes, our king, we wonderfully receive him. Away with him. Away with him. Crucify him. Pilate then says, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered and said, we have no king but Caesar. See, the world always rejects the gospel. The religious world outside of the grace of God in the gospel who have not trusted in Christ rejects the gospel. The non-religious world rejects the gospel. All men and women and boys and girls everywhere are born in a state of gospel rejection and need grace before we come to even realize truly that we have a problem. Jesus said, unless you are born again, you can't even see the kingdom of God. The world always rejects the gospel. What is the gospel? What is it truly that they're rejecting? Is it really Paul that they have a problem with? Was it really Stephen that they had a problem with? Was it really the apostles that they had a problem with? No, it was Jesus that they had a problem with. 
Because Christ had come and exposed their sin and their, their need of repentance. And they were refusing to hear the very Son of God teaching and preaching the truth. And unwilling to accept Him as the Messiah or the Savior. See, the Gospel is put plainly. You know, the, the bad news is that God is a righteous and holy Creator who can have nothing to do with sin but judgment. And that man has fallen into sin since Adam and deserves condemnation from God, is not righteous and cannot be righteous enough to be accepted by God. In fact, Isaiah says all of our righteous attempts are filthy rags. So the bad news is we are born needing a Savior and we, are not the, we don't qualify. We can't save ourselves. God won't weigh our good works and our bad works to see which is heavier because there are no good works when it comes to the justice of God. Nobody has perfectly sought to glorify God out of love for Him, sought to obey His law in thought, word, and deed. So we're lost and we need a Savior. So then there, there comes the gospel. Gospel meaning good news. Good news that since we can't save ourselves, God sent His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to live for us. Live doing what? Just hanging out? No, He was fulfilling all righteousness on our behalf. He was fulfilling the law. He was keeping His own law in thought, word, and deed. Fulfilling all righteousness, like He said to John the Baptist. Providing a righteousness for His people that He would give to them as a free gift. And then He died to pay the penalty for our sins. Christ died for our sins. Very succinctly put, 1 Corinthians 15. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish what we deserve, but shall have everlasting life. See, Jesus lived for us, fulfilling all righteousness. He died to pay the penalty of our sin. He was raised on the third day. And sh He showed Himself alive over a period of 40 days to the disciples, appearing even at one time to over 500 people at one time. It was undeniable that He was raised from the grave. Listen, if Jesus wasn't raised from the grave, Christianity is false. I don't get liberal Christianity in one sense, in another sense I do. But if Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, then let's go party because this is all we've got. But He was raised from the dead and He has ascended into heaven and He is coming again. But the gospel is that He died for our sins and He was raised from the grave and He gives salvation as a free gift. You don't have to earn it. You can't earn it. You can't clean yourself up first to make yourself acceptable. God have mercy on me, a sinner, was the cry of the tax collector. And Jesus said He went home justified. Salvation is a free gift through faith. And God even gives us the repentance and faith that He requires. Have you seen that you deserve wrath, that you are lost and you need a Savior? If the Spirit's at work in you, you will recognize that. Have you seen that the mercy of God is available as a free gift in Christ? If the Spirit's at work in you, you will recognize that. Turn today and trust in Jesus and Jesus alone for your salvation. You don't want to stand at the judgment by yourself and answer on your own. But you know, the, the cool thing is, is if God working it in us, if we turn to Jesus, even with feeble faith, if we're trusting in Jesus for our salvation, we can know that all of our sins are washed away and that His perfect righteousness is credited to us and that we are children of God, accepted by God and being grown in grace, even through the hard things that happen in our life. See, that's the gospel. And apart from the Spirit of God, we all reject it.
That's what's happening here. They're not necessarily rejecting Paul. They're rejecting the gospel that Paul is preaching, just like Paul did. Think about who Paul is. He was Saul of Tarsus. He was the guy trying to wipe out the church. But God arrested him on the road to Damascus. Christ appeared to him and says, why are you persecuting me? And through, through all of that encounter and sending Ananias to him, he was converted. And now he's Paul. The gospel he used to try to destroy, now he's preaching. And now he's experiencing some of the things he, he used to do to others. But the gospel is being rejected. See, I just want to step back right there and look at what has led up to this point. We'll talk more and we'll see Paul speak to the crowd and all of that. But Agabus faithfully predicted what was going to happen. In other words, some of Paul's future was revealed faithfully by Agabus. Agabus told what was going to happen. Paul went to Jerusalem and it happened. He didn't try to dodge it because the path of faithfulness required that suffering. You read the New Testament, you'll see that the apostles don't always dodge trouble. I mean, this is the same Paul they dropped down in a basket and sent away to Tarsus because persecution was coming. But this was God's call upon his life. This was the faithful path he needed to take. So when the choice was between protection and faithfulness, Paul chose faithfulness, and that suffering has fallen upon him, the suffering that was predicted. Agabus faithfully delivered the message, but God didn't reveal everything to Paul. Just what was going to happen. So when we look at this text, I just want us, before we go home, to think about two things. God's clear ways and God's confusing ways. If nothing about life confuses you as a Christian, you're not being honest with yourself or anybody else. You're not thinking deeply about life if nothing ever confuses you. Let's first talk about what I'm calling God's clear ways. This, this is simple in one sense. His clear ways are the things that He's revealed. Here are where His clear ways are outlined. He's given us a book. He's told us everything we need to know for life and godliness. Everything we know need to know to be saved and grown in grace is here. Not everything we need to know, fix a car and all that, right? Book of Redemption. But everything we need to know to live a life and to live a godly life, to be faithful to Him. Think about this. The things that are revealed, that verse said, belong to us and our children. What are the things that are revealed? This is the things that are revealed right here. Genesis to Revelation. God has spoken. And it is sufficient for the salvation that He calls us to. See, God revealed enough to Paul. It pictured in the life of Paul. God revealed enough to sustain his faith in the trial and to fuel his faithfulness in the midst of suffering. I mean, we wouldn't have done it this way. Very faithful and effective church planter. No, we're going to have him arrested, stay in custody, eventually be martyred in Rome. But God worked through that and used that, and that was part of the you know, secret, all the things that were going to happen. God has revealed enough to us to fuel our faithfulness as well. He hasn't answered all of our questions. And listen to me, God will never answer all of your questions. He intentionally won't answer all of your questions. Some of the answers you're not able to comprehend because you don't have an infinite mind like He does. But some things He, he just, I mean, he, He's for us and with us and working with us, in us through it to make us more like Jesus, but He will never answer all of our why questions, even all of our what questions. 
I mean, when we think about finding, we want to find the will of God. We want him to give us a detailed plan for the next 30 years. You know what he usually does? He tells us the next thing in some form or the other. We, get, we, we know the next thing we're supposed to do. And we don't necessarily even know how all that's going to turn out, but we know that he calls us to walk through that in a way that glorifies him. He's revealed enough for us to be faithful. I alluded to this. 2 Peter 1.3, we already had a sermon on this. So God's transforming love. You can go back to that one. But His divine power has granted to us all things, everything that pertains to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. And we know Him through His promises. We know Him through His revelation. We know Him through His word. 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17, watch this. All Scripture is breathed out by God. It is inspired and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God, woman of God, person of God may be complete, fully equipped. It really, some other translations do this word better. Fully equipped for every good work. Through the inspired Scriptures, we are complete and fully equipped for every good work, everything God calls us to. We're not lacking anything, either by directly addressing what we're going through or by the principles drawn from God's Word that we use to, to walk through things. We have everything we need for life and godliness in what we've revealed. Like Deuteronomy 29, 29, it said, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and our children, that we may keep His law, it said, or that we may be faithful to Him. Even back there, God was saying, I'm giving you everything you need here, if you'll trust me. So God has revealed a lot of stuff. We have a great bit of revelation. We have 66 books. Genesis to Revelation about Jesus and the plan of redemption accomplished in Jesus and our salvation in Christ. So God has revealed to us in one sense some things about what will happen. We have some really concrete things that we know will happen in our future through reading this book. One of which is judgment. He appointed a man to die once. Reincarnation's out. Die once and then the judgment. And the only way to survive the judgment is with Jesus. That Christ is coming again. That there's going to be a new heavens and new earth. That there'll be no more crying sickness or tears there will be fully delivered and fully satisfied and fully enjoy and never have pain or sickness or sorrow or crying anymore there. Not here, there. In the new heavens and new earth. But hard things happen here, so let's take a minute and talk about God's confusing ways. These are things that we're not warned about and sometimes seem wrong to us. Things will happen to you in this life sometimes that will seem wrong to you even if you're a follower of Jesus. You're not omniscient. <laughs> you don't have all wisdom like God. There are going to be times when you'll be tempted to accuse God. And if you look in the wrong place, you will. If you don't look to the cross, if you look to the cross, you'll never accuse God of not being good. Life takes us by surprise sometimes, doesn't it? Life hurts. People die. Cars break. Children talk back. Children end up saying some of the same words you said. 
hard things happen in this life. And it takes us by surprise. And, and if we're not equipped with His revelation, a whole lot more of life is going to be confusing than should be. But hard things happen to Christian people in this life. And sometimes we have to back, we back up and say, Lord, I don't know what you're doing here. I look to the cross, I can trust you. I look to your word, I can trust you. But I really don't understand what you're doing here. We have a friend who recently passed away. Philip didn't expect that. Philip was a pastor. Uh, his wife is a godly woman. She, she, they both are. Uh, seen a successful church plant in Sylvan, North Carolina. Moved to Mississippi, Mississippi with an assignment to work on a church plant there. And they hadn't been there very long when a, when a, um, a spot was found on Philip. And so when he goes to the doctor and when they do the biopsy, it's, it's melanoma. But it had metastasized. And so it was all through him. I mean, and they used the latest treatments and all this kind of stuff to fight it until he got to the place where he just couldn't fight it anymore. And he passed away. And he leaves a young wife who loves the Lord. And he leaves young children who needed a dad. And if you're just looking at that in isolation, you're tempted to think, that shouldn't be. It won't be in the new heavens and new earth. And it wasn't before the fall. But death is a part of life here. How do we deal with that? How is his family dealing with that? The answer to how we deal with that, the unrevealed things, is to know the revealed things. Like I said, I'm just I'm using it as a just a symbol, a short summary. But if we look to the cross, we'll never accuse God of wrong. And God's word even says, "Precious in the sight of the Lord are the death is the death of His saints." His children are set free at death. Ever with him in his presence. Philip is set free rejoicing in the presence of Christ right now. But his family misses him. And wishes it wasn't so. But by God's grace, his family is steeped in the word of God. And so they are walking and God's people have flocked around them. And are caring for them. That doesn't mean it's not hard. Lori and the kids grieve. But they don't grieve as one with no hope. And that's the difference. She misses him horribly. But she knows she'll see him again. How does she know that? Word of God. See we are prepared for the surprises as we see things. By what has been revealed. We are able to walk with God in faithfulness. Without having our why questions answered. Lori and the kids have no answer to the why question other than what they learned from God's word and his love and grace and mercy and sovereignty and how he will care for them and on and on it goes. So the answer to dealing with the tough things of life is not just to gut it out, but it's to know your God and to know his word, 
so that when things like that happen, you know that he's with you and for you and has not left you behind and he has a purpose in this. Some of the purposes sometimes is that people, we just get old and die. And in some form, that's going to happen to all of you unless Jesus returns before that happens. So we all need to be ready. I've said before, my biggest job is to prepare you to die. Because you'll only really live if you're ready to die. And you'll only be ready to die if you're trusting in Jesus. But the answer on how to deal with the tough things, like what's going on in Paul's life, he's being arrested, he's being beaten, he'll go through a great many struggles and suffering for Christ, and Christ warned him of that ahead of time. He will eventually be martyred, and yet his motto is to live as Christ and to die as gain. Why? Because he knows his God. He knows his word. He knows what this life is. He knows what the life is to come. He knows his great, God's grace and he knows when he exits this life, he will be with his Lord. We deal with the unknown by knowing the known. Paul knew a little bit about what was going to happen. He knew his God through scriptures, so he's able to walk through that. We know a little bit about what's going to happen. But if we're in the word, we know our God and we're growing in it. So we're able to walk through whatever happens because we know He's with us and for us. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. So how is Lori dealing with the death of her precious husband? I have... Yep. These are her words. And these are real words. And if you knew her, you'd know that. Speaking about her husband, she said, I am better because of his life, his love, and his leadership. I will miss him with great groans of grief until the day when my faith is made sight. Where is she getting that? The word. The Lord, look, look, look at this. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed Forever and ever in all things and at all times, including these times, blessed be the name of the Lord. God's will was done in Philip's life. His days were written down before there was one. He's gone home now. His wife is left behind. But look at that beautiful testimony of faith. How is she able to say that? Because she knows His Word. She knows her God. She trusts her God. And so she's equipped for the trial and the struggle. We're going to see Paul walk through the trial and the struggle faithfully because he knows his God. And he will go all the way to the end and he'll write that beautiful letter, 2 Timothy, right before his martyrdom to his son in the faith, Timothy. But she's able to say at this moment, blessed be the name of the Lord. Job was able to say, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We, if we know our God, are able to say, even in the hard times of life, blessed be the name of the Lord. God's will was done in Philip's life and he called him home. God's will was done in Paul's life and he called him home. He had graciously warned him of things to come. Paul knew his sovereign God and submitted to his plan. Enough had been revealed to sustain his faith and faithfulness in the midst of the trial. 
And that trial would last to the end of his days until he went to be with the Lord. God has revealed enough to us in his word that we might trust him and rest in him and be faithful to him even in the midst of our hardest trials. So know what he has revealed so that you may trust him when the things he hasn't revealed come around. Remember our main point. God has revealed everything we need to know to trust him with the secret things. Therefore, know his word, trust him, and live for his glory in Christ. Rest in his grace in Christ and seek to live for him in the power of his spirit. He is faithful and he will take us all the way home. To live is Christ. To live is Christ. We say that a lot, but I want us to really believe it, right? To die is gain because life is Christ. He has lived for us, died for us, and been raised from the grave. We have faith in him. We're trusting in him. We are hidden in him. And we will be taken all the way home by him if our faith is real. So trust him and rest in him. To live is Christ. Let's pray. Thank you for your grace, Lord. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have conquered death for us and every other trial. As the Heidelberg Confession says, that they must all now work for us because you have sacrificed yourself for us. So help us to trust you. Help us to rest in you. Help us to not hide from suffering. Help us to not in, uh, unnecessarily run into it either. But when it lies in the path of faithfulness, help us to follow you through the fiery trial and to follow you in faith because of your rich, wonderful word that you have given us, showing us our rich, wonderful Savior who has dealt with all of our sins. Thank you that you have loved us, Lord Jesus, and freed us from our sins by sacrificing yourself for us. Thank you that you are raised from the dead and reigning for us that every one of our days are written down before there was one, that you will see us all the way through, that you will accomplish your purpose in each and every one of our lives, and you will take us all the way home. And we thank you for the beautiful picture of faithfulness in the midst of trial we have in, first of all, in the Lord Jesus Christ, but in, in the lives of the apostles and including the Apostle Paul that we're studying right now. This world is not our home. We are passing through to an eternal home and yet you are with us and for us here in accomplishing all of your purpose in us and through us, even when we can't see it. Help us to trust you. Help us to rest in your grace. Help us to passionately live for your glory. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.